Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. It's a great day to be alive. I hope you're taking the opportunity to get out, go do something, break a sweat, do some exercise, visit with some friends, play some tennis, do some work. You're at the office. Is anybody going back to the office? I haven't heard anything about people going back to the office. I've heard people getting their hair cut. Don't tell anybody, but I went to Great Clips last week and it was orgasmic. It was like the most incredible haircut I've ever had. Thank you to the team at Great Clips at Brookhaven Station for shaving my neck in a way that it hasn't been shaved since like March 1st. Is that too much information? I think you know what I'm talking about. I have very little hair, but the irony is the less hair you have, the more often you have to get it cut. It's ridiculous. And I value a freshly shorn neck. That's not nearly as weird as it sounds. I just like organization. I like things clean. What can I say? Hey, I've got an amazing conversation to share with you today with my friend, Julie Saxon. The theme of today's show is gratitude for all the good things you have in your life because you never know how long you'll have them. Yes, money is a very important thing, but your health and your family's health are worth far more than gold, a lesson that Julie has learned and lived far greater than anyone her age should have to live. And I will have more about Julie in a minute. Let's go back to uh, Great Clips, shall we? Well, not about Great Clips, but I wonder, where are you? To what degree have you re-entered society? And what do you think this is going to happen? I think it's going to be like a slow kind of like slide back into reality as long as there's no quick resurgence of the coronavirus. Are people rushing back into restaurants? Yes, there's a lot of protests. There's political rallies that are happening for the election coming up. People are going back to church. Are these things going to spur a resurgence? I don't know. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist, whatever. I had no idea what that was before I learned about Anthony Fauci. I think it's going to be interesting. I got to say, I'm more grateful than ever for the time I've gotten to spend with the friends without doing you know, quite as strict social distancing as we've had been doing. I've been grateful to go out of town a couple of times in the past few weeks. You know, the concept of summer after your kids didn't leave the house for 12 weeks. Did I say this last week? I don't think I did. But the other night I said around 9 p.m., I said, kids, it's bedtime. And they said, but dad, it's summer. And I was like, what does that even mean? What does it mean that it's summer? But you don't have to go to school tomorrow. You haven't gone to school in 12 weeks. It was pre-St. Patrick's Day when you went to school the last time. So what difference does it make whether it's 85 or 65 degrees? Spring, summer, it's all a construct that has nothing to do with reality. It's going to be fascinating, folks, to see what happens. See what happens to commutes and traffic. Man, in Atlanta, where I live, traffic is the number one suckitude thing here in town. Atlanta is a great town. I believe that on a per capita basis, Atlanta has as good a restaurants as any town in the country, any town. I'll hold them right up there. The problem is, well, the problem is for the past 12, 14, whatever it's been weeks is they're not open. But the problem before that was that as good as they are, I'm not going to spend 45 minutes in the car, even if it's an Uber to get to dinner at seven o'clock on a Friday night. So we end up going to the restaurants that are around us and they're good, but they're probably not the best restaurants in town. Anyway, yeah, so I'm interested to see what's gonna happen. I hope that you're being safe. I hope that you're taking precautions, but also making the most of the relaxed social distancing thing. While wearing your mask, wear your mask. Don't be the person in the grocery store without a mask. Nobody needs that person anymore. I don't care where your politics are. And it's sad politics even have anything to do with microbes. You're not doing it for you. You're doing it for me and my kids and my 92-year-old father and all the other 92-year-old people out there. So get out there and please wear your mask. You're not doing it for yourself. Be selfless. Yeah, your glasses fog up. Yeah, you got to smell your own stinky breath. But think of it like you don't have to embarrass yourself by others smelling that breath. Get out there, be safe, get some exercise, and be grateful. Let's talk about gratitude. I've got a very interesting conversation for you today. It's not necessarily a happy one, and yet I'm somehow inspired because in witnessing my guest's journey slash trek, I am a front row witness to courage and character from a former colleague and friend that just amazes me. I want to tell you a little bit about her. So 
Julie Saxon and I worked together at Yahoo back in the early 2000s. I was bouncing around Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, those offices, while she lived here in Atlanta and worked here in Atlanta. I would come home to visit my folks, and I'd go hang out in the Atlanta office. And the Atlanta office had this great vibe. The leader, Mitch Spolin, was just this very relaxed, nice guy, incredibly confident. He's the kind of guy that's so confident that he doesn't need to try to impress you just because he's very happy with himself. He's very comfortable in his own skin and he wants you to be your best. That's the kind of guy that Spolin is. Anyway, he hired this amazing team of people or was promoted to manage the team of people that was already there. I don't remember. I don't remember the politics from 20 years ago, but the team was amazing. And I mentioned it because Julie and I didn't talk for a long time, but then you know I reconnected with her after I moved back to Atlanta. And in 2013, Julie's career was rocking right along. She wasn't the new college graduate I knew when I first met her. She was now a wife and the mother of two young children. She's at a very large digital media company. She had just gotten this big promotion and she was doing quite nicely. Well, later in that year, everything changed when Julie's husband was diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer. And thus began a six-year trek through chemo surgeries, hospital bills, insurance hell, and trying to keep her life, her kids, her husband, and her career all on the tracks. It was a valiant, valiant fight that she and Joel and her daughters fought. But after six years, 87 rounds of chemo, 10 rounds of radiation, seven surgeries, and two clinical trials, Joel's fight with cancer ended in his death. He lived longer than 99% of patients with his diagnosis live. And as Julie was reminding me of all this, I had read the Caring Bridge entries, the diaries that she and Joel and her sister kept throughout this journey. While I listened to her tell the story, I couldn't help but think how much Julie's strength and support and raw will had to do with Joel's relative longevity. It's just wild to think of the randomness and the cruelty of life, and yet the opportunity to step up and be as strong as you possibly can be in circumstances that seem to be impossible. And I can't say how much admiration I have for Julie and the story she's about to tell you. Today, Julie is the VP Group Director of Sales for a large digital media company. She and her two daughters live in Atlanta. I want to thank her for trusting me with this conversation, which I share with you now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Julie Saxon. You start to get numb to seeing these stacks of bills that come in. And the numbers you see are downright terrifying. (laughs) I mean, it's like comical. I mean, like, why are there so many numbers here? Like, this is not like $1,252. This is like... 1,252,000 for like a very, very long hospital stay. Mm. You absolutely have to have a hustle mentality. I am fortunate that I work for a huge company, but you have to be able to not hear no. And for me, no means no, but no if. And you got to really negotiate with insurance sometimes. So hustle mentality and never giving up with getting the coverage you deserve and need is key. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Julie Saxon, welcome to Crazy Money. It is awesome to be here, Paul. So Julie, let's go back to early 2013. What was your family and work situation? So in 2013, we had just moved back to Atlanta. We had been in Atlanta before and we were in Charlotte and we moved back for my job and we bought what I considered our dream house. Where we're sitting this moment. We are sitting here right now. It's a beautiful old home on a storied boulevard in Atlanta, Georgia. I love that storied boulevard. It makes me sound kind of fancy. It's a pretty fancy place. It it is pretty fancy. Well, we had bought this house in 2012, so it'd been here right around a year. Our daughters were four and six years old, and everything was going great. It was like I was living the dream. I had an amazing career, a wonderful husband, a great new house, and wonderful children. And uh, then cancer decided to show up. Yes. Before we jump into cancer, how did you and Joel meet? Joel and I met on a blind date by a very good friend of mine named Brent Hurd. (laughs) 
I didn't know that. Which I know that's just kind of funny to think about. Uh, that's this, a mutual friend of ours, everyone. This is a mutual friend of ours. We are part of an old school gang that all started working together many years ago. This was when blind dates were truly blind dates. There was no Facebook. There was no Instagram, as in I'm meeting at a bar and I have no idea what you look like kind mm-hmm. of blind date. Joel was very much the yin to my yang. He was extremely calm. And those who know me might say that I have a type A personality and I'm rather (laughs) headstrong. What attracted you to him? He was a real calming influence to me. That was super helpful. He was a chef, which what female doesn't want to be married to a chef? I hadn't cooked in a very long time. And how old were your girls? When he was diagnosed? Yeah, in 2013. So in 2013, when he was diagnosed, Caroline was four and Kate was six. Okay. So how's your career going at this point? At this point, I am 38 years old. I have had an unbelievable career in the internet world where so many of us have met starting at Yahoo back in 1999 and have been at many companies since then. My career was going incredibly well. I was working for a wonderful company. I was on a trajectory of success. And it was a really exciting time. Like I mentioned, I had just moved back to Atlanta for a career opportunity. And you're speaking at a conference in Miami. What happens when you get off stage? So it was a really big deal. I was speaking at a conference in Miami. And Joel and I had just spent our 10th anniversary in Napa. And without getting into lots of details, it was not a wonderful trip. He was quite sick for the trip. And we got back and I said, there is something wrong. You must go to the doctor. He had actually been to the doctor several times and everybody kept telling him he was fine. After this trip, I said, nothing is fine. Everything is wrong. He went to a GI doctor and scheduled an appointment for a colonoscopy. I was speaking at a big conference. You've been to a million of these, these sales conferences where some of the top performers are highlighted in their success. Actually, I didn't go to any of those. Oh. (laughs) Because of Andy Atherton. Oh. There's too much inside Yahoo here. There's too much inside. But anyway, I was speaking kind of as like one of the featured rock stars of the company and the keys to my success. And so Joel had had his dad take him to the colonoscopy. I get off the stage and I look at my phone and I had missed seven phone calls from Joel. Mm. If you miss seven phone calls from me, it could be over something completely (laughs) inconsequential and unimportant. What shirt do I wear? What kind of butter do I buy? Something like that. Seven missed phone calls from Joel and something is terribly, terribly wrong. So you find out that he's been diagnosed with cancer. Well, it wasn't then that we had actually found out he was diagnosed with cancer. They had found in the colonoscopy a questionable mass Mm. in his colon that was most likely cancer, but they didn't know with absolute certainty. Anyone that has spent any time in dealing with someone sick in medicine knows that it takes about 87 tests to find out with true conviction what really is going on. But it was a pretty educated guess that he had a huge tumor in his colon, which was very, very young for him to have a huge tumor in his colon. He was young to have that. He had just turned 40. Right. And so what are you thinking on the flight home? Well, this conference was, was down in Miami and it was like a hurried scramble of chaos of talking to him and... I think one of the things that makes us super resourceful in the sales world is you say, who's in my network? Who do I call? Where do I go? So I immediately called one of my best friends, Julie Giese, who leads the PAs in pathology at Piedmont Hospital. And I said, we got to really fast get in with the best oncologist. Who do we go to? And from there, of course, we were in you know the next morning with Dr. Eric Menenberg, who's an amazing oncologist in Atlanta. The diagnosis is confirmed within a few days, correct? Yes, the diagnosis is confirmed within a few days. People think that you get cancer and you just miraculously start chemo. What a lot of people don't realize is you actually have to get a port put in, which is how chemo is administered. Mm -hmm. And once the port gets put in, it actually takes a couple days. Not only did he have a huge tumor in his colon, he had five tumors in his liver as well. Mm -hmm. He actually started chemo on 
Christmas Eve. So we started chemo December 24th of 2013. Wow. So within like three weeks of speaking at this conference or 17, what is it? 11 days of speaking at this conference, you go from being mom, wife, executive, and now you take on the role of caregiver. Yes. What is involved in the role of caregiver? What many people don't realize is there's about 40 million people at any time in the United States that are caregivers. It's not a role that anybody necessarily wants, but it's one that a lot of us will have. My grandfather, Pop, used to always tell me everyone will have their own bag of rocks. I got my bag of rocks very early at 38. Being a caregiver, I can't tell you how much emotional stamina it takes to be a caregiver. Because as a caregiver, you are a hustler for doctor's appointments. You are a hustler for chemo schedules. You are a constant cheerleader for the patient, being Joel, my husband. You still are keeping the, all the plates spinning of your children, and they still have tests and soccer schedules. And I still was in a very, very full-time working scenario, and I didn't plan on that to stop. <laughs> right. In your head, was there sort of a, okay, this is going to be a year, we're going to knock this out and things will get back to normal? Or did you have any idea how serious it was right from the beginning? You hear stage four cancer, Mm -hmm. and that's never good. Right. Dr. Menenberger, our oncologist, would never give us a time frame, right? Mm -hmm. And I think he did that on purpose because a lot of times people fulfill the time frame because that's what they've been told. You know, it's really interesting. All cancers follow a very predictable path. People don't realize this, but for what Joel had colon, it went to his liver, then it went to his lungs, and then it went to his brain. And one of my best friends, Julie Giese, who I mentioned, she said that that was pretty much what would happen. Mm -hmm. And then we never discussed it again. We sat over cocktails and I pretty much cried and said, what am I going to do with my life? She was very specific about what would happen. And then you pretty much pull up your bootstraps and you think with as much hope as you possibly can and you figure out a plan. And that's part of what kept me somewhat sane yet made me completely crazy is I was always desperate to have a plan. But cancer and chemo doesn't necessarily always have a plan because it's somewhat the roller coaster from hell. You think you know what's going on, and then you have complications of a chemo, or you get sick with something else as a side effect of the chemo. So it's extremely difficult to plan anything. So you have a treatment plan, but it's not like you can set a whole schedule around that. There's too many curveballs involved to say, I know exactly what's going to happen with our treatment. Exactly. I mean, Joel, at the end of the day, had, you know, 87 rounds of chemo, seven surgeries, participated in clinical trials in two different cities. So I would desperately try to come up with a plan, but a lot of times the plan was derailed. Right. Uh, Every type of chemo, there does get to be a rhythm. So Joel would have his chemo every 14 days. So I knew if he had his chemo on a Monday... He'd be sick as a dog through about the following Monday, Mm. start to come to life about Tuesday, Wednesday. And by the following weekend, I always tried to plan something fun to keep him going. So that made it really difficult because people would see him on days, call it 11 to 13, Mm -hmm. before the cycle starts again. And they'd say, oh, he looks great. And I am sitting there going, well, he looks great for two to three days out of 14. That's not a great way to live. Right. And initially, the chemo appeared to be working pretty well. It did. Part of the plan for Joel was he had a lot of chemo, and then he had 70% of his liver taken out, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people don't realize the liver does completely regenerate. So within Mm. three weeks of getting 70% of his liver taken out, it regenerated. Then he had to have another surgery that removed 12 inches of colon. So thankfully, you have a lot of colon and your liver regenerates. So we had about a year where he was on what you call maintenance chemo, which is not as bad as regular chemo. But this type of cancer is so aggressive that he had to stay on the chemo. And then we found it went to his lungs. Right. 
What does a new caregiver need to know about the way insurance works and how did your sales background help you dealing with that industry? You start to get numb to seeing these stacks of bills that come in. And the numbers you see are downright terrifying. <laughs> I mean, it's like comical. I mean, like, why are there so many numbers here? Like, this is not like $1,252. This is like $1,252,000 for like a very, very long hospital stay. Mm-hmm. Insurance, you absolutely have to have a hustle mentality. I am fortunate that I work for a huge company with, for the most part, amazing insurance, but you have to be able to not hear no. And for me, no means no, but no if, and you got to really negotiate with insurance sometimes. And another piece of advice is you get sent these bills, just, just keep filing them away because the insurances will go through battles and then you'll ultimately usually get something that is a palatable number. And you know, you max out at, you know, whatever amount of dollars, which isn't that bad if you have a good policy. But I spent way too much time dealing with insurance because I really thought we were going to like lose everything we have because these numbers you see are just like mind bogglingly scary. So hustle mentality and never giving up with getting the coverage you deserve and need is key. So, and that's not just about the back end. It's about getting them to approve procedures on the front end also. Correct. It's about getting things approved on the front end. You have to be really pretty specific with sometimes like the things that you need to get approved. A perfect example, and this is actually for myself, not even for Joel, but when I had the mastectomy, the type of cadaver skin they use in doing the mastectomy was not approved. I sat on the phone with the insurance on a Sunday afternoon, arguing with them that this is what my doctor said had to be used. Mm. And we finally got it pushed through. But that's just one tiny example of a million. You're like, what? Uh, who cares? Like, you know, put <laughs> cadaver skin, cadaver skin. Yeah. Like, and that, and, and when they do, these are words I never thought I'd hear. I don't, yeah, I don't know kinda, how that the cadaver skin market works. I, I mean, it's sometimes they use pig skin in you. Sometimes they use cadaver skin. Sometimes they use synthetic skin, Oh my God! but cadaver skin is way better. Turns out. <laughs> As long as the cadaver in question had a, you know, a daily skincare regimen and moisturized and exfoliated on a regular basis. Lemare only for cadaver skin. In preparation for this interview, I went back and read through the entirety of the caring bridge that Julie and her sister set up and that both of them and Joel contributed to from December of 2013 until actually just a couple of months ago. So I have a little bit of insight into what Julie went through, at least from a facts perspective. One of the examples of how quickly you had to adjust to being both a very busy professional and a caregiver is just a few weeks after Joel is diagnosed, a week or two after he starts chemo on Christmas Eve, you have to go to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas which is both fun and terrible as an event when things are great. <laughs> and as I was thinking about this, I think I even saw you at this CES, or it was either this one or the year Maybe after. Maybe at the Chandelier Bar. It was late at the Bellagio, I think. It was either at the Bellagio or the Wynn, late after dinner one night. We just said, hey, like for three minutes on your way to the elevator, you were probably like, get me the hell out of here. (laughs) I've got to go back to my room and deal with my life. So like right away, you've got to play both of these roles. How are you thinking you would manage that at the time? You know, hindsight is 2020. And for me, I'm not saying this was the right thing to do, but I very much compartmentalized what I was dealing with personally. Mm -hmm. I was 38 If I'm being completely honest, I was, you know, the breadwinner in our family and I did not feel like I was at a point where I could be fully honest at work. That has nothing to say about my workplace and the company I work for. I think it was honestly more of my insecurities. Mm -hmm. So I think what has been really difficult is I went through the first three years of six years of this journey. People call it a journey. I hate that word. I call it a trek. Journey sounds like there could be something possibly interesting 
a trek is long and hard. So no one at work had any idea what I was going through for over three years. That was a huge burden, cross to bear, whatever you want to call it, because I was putting up the front that everything was fine. Because I was, if I'm very candid and honest, I was worried about income. I was worried about insurance. You know our industry. We go through mergers, layoffs, acquisitions every six months. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I was at a time where somehow I continued to get promoted multiple (laughs) times despite dealing with personal hell. Right. And I think now I am actually extremely vocal about it because I realized trying to keep all those plates spinning almost killed me, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was trying to be 150% at work, 150% at hustling and negotiating doctor's appointments, chemos, schedules. My children were really young. I never wanted to miss any events for them. That was how I dealt with it. In hindsight, I don't think that was the right way to deal with it. But I think what was really hard is I was so young and I actually did try and go to a couple different support groups, et cetera. But everybody was 70 years old. I mean, I'm 38. I have small kids. I have a very, very sick husband. And you do find unlikely friends, right? So one of my sisters in Charlotte, Anna, has a best friend who has a sister who lost a husband. And I ended up becoming very close friends with her and seeking guidance because she at least knew what I was dealing with. Thankfully, it's a small club of people this young with six spouses. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know anybody. And I can have the most supportive sister friends under the world, but I didn't have anybody that truly knew what I was dealing with. Were you worried about the stigma at work of dealing with this massive personal issue and still being taken seriously in the workplace? I really truly was. I was desperate for cancer to not define me or my family. I did not want people to look at me with sadness. I did not want people to look at me and feel sorry for me. I did not want every meeting I walked into to have the first 15 minutes about Joel's chemo treatment or surgery. I needed to keep work as work For me, that was how I dealt with it. And I think my friends and family were very concerned that that's how I dealt with it at first. But it is hard when you have no idea how long it's going to be. I mean, it ended up being six years. It turns out that Joel was in the 1% of his type of cancer that makes it that long. Yeah. But we didn't know what we were dealing with. And I just, for whatever reason, wanted to keep work separate. How did you concentrate when you were at work? How did you get your work done? Was it a relief to be at work and to be able to not think about it for a little while? Yeah, I really suggest people who are going through this, work is an outlet and it allows you to have something else to focus on. Mm -hmm. That said, once I did talk to work about it, it became extremely helpful for them to understand what was going on. But I wasn't ready in the beginning. And, And that's one of the things that I will say is anybody's seen that movie, Big Little Lies, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorites, mm-hmm. Renata talks in the movie about <laughs> don't be a judgy judger. <laughs> and everybody judges you all the time. Like my skin is like Teflon now because yeah. people thought, you know, I was even told that I was annoying the daylights out of the nurses and the doctors and the receptionists and the chemo schedulers. But you know what? Last week... Dr. Menenberg's main PA, Amy York, was at my house hanging out. Mm. I just went to the baby shower of the receptionist uh, daughter (laughs) at the cancer center. I mean, Joel died a year ago, and I'm still hanging out with these people, so they're not fair-weather friends. (laughs) Hey, everybody, it's Paul. You know, the news over the past few weeks has been quite distressing. Here at Crazy Money, we want to do our part by promoting understanding of ourselves and the realities of the world we live in through honest conversation. After you finish this interview with Julie, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the interview I did on May 5th with Jim Lowry. Jim, if you haven't listened to it, was the first black consultant at McKinsey in 1968, and he went on to develop groundbreaking minority business development programs for top corporations, the federal government, and large municipalities throughout the 1970s and 80s. Listening to our conversation won't explain everything that's going on, but it might just provide you with some perspective on how much progress we have and haven't made in the U.S. So I encourage you, go back and check out Jim Lowry on May 5th of this year after you finish listening to the wonderful Julie Saxon. 
Well, you talk about self-care without judgment. How did you take care of yourself during that time? When did you have time to take care of yourself? I still did a couple girls trips just for complete sanity. Uh, skiing is always a huge outlet for me. Mm-hmm. Even in these six years, I think I still skied on my girls ski trip for the six years we dealt with this. This is really mentally insane, but I trained with Team Determination, which is the American Cancer Society, and ran the marathon. What year did you do that? In 2017. So four years into his cancer four, journey, four like, years. screw it, I think I'll run a marathon. Yeah, because that's seemed- of On top of, because I don't have enough to do. I'm getting what? How many hours of sleep are you getting every yeah, night? Yeah, not, not enough. It seemed like an incredibly smart decision at the time to train for a marathon while I was juggling chemo schedules, doctor's appointments, clinical trials, small children. But anyone who knows me knows that's kind of the way I live. Right. And I have to say, uh, Joel was the keynote speaker at the big dinner the night before the marathon, and it was an ultimate bucket list item. I mean, Joel and my sisters ran all over New York City. My team raised over $275,000, so it was a very good thing. Wow. You talk about it as a roller coaster, and every 90 days, Joel's getting scans to find out what's happening with the cancer and how it's reacting to the medicine, if at all. What's it like to manage your emotions in 90-day increments like that? So there's a whole new lingo that you learn when you are mm-hmm. dealing with cancer. Simple things like a PET scan, I had no idea what that was. Another word that is very pervasive in the cancer community is scanxiety. And this is when your whole body essentially falls apart waiting on test results. It is terrible. It's like you sit there waiting to figure out, can I live another 90 days or is the world falling apart? So for us, part of how I managed everything is we would get test results and I would sit in with Dr. Menenberg and I would pull out, at the time, I'm one of those really old school people, yet having a profession in the digital world that still keeps like the Chick-fil-A calendar. Or you, right? <laughs> With the coupons at the bottom? I mean, they don't even do those anymore. But no at, coupons. At, I mean, no coupons anymore. I really wanted a free ice cream. Didn't get that anymore. But I bring out the Chick-fil-A calendar and we really tried to live through cancer. It's like, okay, my cousin's getting married or okay, we have a spring break trip and You do the best you can to plan things. I mean, you know, our good friends, the Sharfs, planned an amazing trip to the Dominican Republic Mm -hmm. around chemo. We had an awesome ski trip to Mammoth one time, and Joel got really sick and ended up in the hospital for 10 days. But because of my crazy personality and never give up mentality, we essentially went back and did the trip again after Joel ended up in the hospital for 10 days the next year because that wasn't going to be our memory. Mm. I wasn't going to remember Joel being sick. Right, right. You mentioned your sister's friend. Who else did you turn to for support? So it's really interesting. There's really probably four people that I turn to for support. And these are kind of people that I just found organically or knew of. One time I was volunteering with my team at the Hope Lodge in New York And I met this girl. Sorry, what's the Hope Lodge? Oh, excuse me. The Hope Lodge is where people stay when they're at Sloan Kettering, Mm. getting their treatment. I mean, you have months on end that you end up coming from far away. Right. And I met this girl named Morgan, whose husband Donovan was very sick. And she was in New York and she had like three children under five. And she was in New York for months on end with her husband who was sick. Wow. At the time, I had to go to New York about twice a month for work. And every time I went, I would take her out for cocktails or dinner just because she needed a friend and she knew no one. Mm -hmm. So that was somebody. I mentioned my friend Amy, who is my sister's friend's sister. That makes sense. One of my best friends since the third grade, sadly enough, died of esophageal cancer. And her husband, Jess, has become a really good friend and confidant. And then I have another neighbor, Jim, who lost his wife to cancer a few years ago. But this is 
why I've decided to be really open about it because I so desperately needed these people to offer advice. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I remember sitting in Jim's house when I was trying to figure out hospice for Joel, just saying, I just need somebody who's dealt with this. I mean, you don't want your worst enemy to give advice on hospice, but you need somebody who's lived it, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's why I went from being extremely closed to being extremely open because I realized the importance of having people. I mean, just for example, the other day I was at Publix and I ran into a friend from school whose cousin's husband in Virginia has the exact same cancer as Joel did. Another friend in my book club, Tracy, her friend Cheryl has the exact same cancer. And to be able to talk to someone Mm -hmm. who has been through it, And I've really talked to the hospital about trying to do things for people that are younger because it's a very different story navigating cancer as a 38-year-old with small children working than a 70-year-old, honestly. What advice would you give to a husband or wife who was watching his or her partner go through this? What would you have benefited from hearing early in the experience if you would have listened to it? If I would have listened to it. (laughs) I think I would have been very upfront and honest about be open. People are truly there and want to help you. Mm -hmm. You have to get very directional about how you need help. Trying to keep everything going in the wheels of life is extraordinarily difficult. I guess something that I would say as a caregiver is, A, you have to have an incredible hustle mentality. The medical world is not meant for people that give up. Mm. To get that appointment, to get that chemo at the time you want, to figure out how to still keep your vacations, you really have to figure out how to live through cancer. And as the caregiver, one of your biggest part of your job is to be a cheerleader and to how to figure out to get them to the next event, right? Joel was not supposed to make it more than a year, if we're factual about it, and he made it almost six years. Through that time, we skied multiple times. Four months before he died, we were riding bikes over the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm. You really have to figure out how to live through cancer, and you have to figure out how to keep fun events to get you. You know, The goalpost keeps moving, but you have to have something to keep getting you there. The other bit of advice I would truly give is people don't know what to say and just try to have an open heart because people say really stupid things that are really hurtful and they don't actually mean to. I seriously was told by someone, if this should happen to anyone, at least it happened to you because you're strong enough to handle it. Mm. Can you imagine someone telling you that? I I said that exact same thing to a friend who lost her husband, so... I can't imagine people being dumb enough to say that. Yeah. When you watch somebody close to you die and you feel helpless, you want to say something that means something and you end up saying the exact wrong thing. Well, Bob Marley says in one of his famous songs, you never know how strong you can be until strong is your only choice. Right. And when I look back on how I handled it, I'm honestly not sure how I handled it. I just kept going. Right. So that would be my advice to the caregiver. Keep going create fun memories and things to keep you, your husband, spouse, whoever it may be, and the children, fun things to look forward to. And honestly, real advice for friends and family of caregivers is don't ask, what can I do? The amount that is in your brain when you're trying to juggle all of this and keep every plate spinning in the air is mind boggling. I guarantee you, if you show up with pizza, cookies, (laughs) cupcakes, fruit. If you pick my kids up and take them to a movie, just don't make the person that's dealing with it think because Mm -hmm. you can't fit one more thing in your brain. You know, a friend of mine had a pretty tough diagnosis. And so I did what I would have wanted. I dropped off on her porch, a thing of flowers, a thing of magazines and a candle. I did not drop off a casserole. I can't look at casseroles (laughs) anymore. Nothing with cream of chicken. Oh, God. Nothing with cream of mushroom. Uh, Right. Please don't give me that. No good housekeeping recipes, how to feed your family. Uh, No. And any one pot wonder, please, please take away. (laughs) So you go through five and a half years 
you've juggled schedules, you juggle chemo and radiation and operations. You have two trials that end up just not working and Joel passes away about a year ago. Tell me about the funeral. Well, just to back up for one second, just to kind of give some clarity on trials, because I can't tell you how many people, and they don't mean, they don't really mean this, but they say, oh, get in a clinical trial as if they're just like, you know, open doors for clinical trials. Clinical trials are really difficult to get into. I think I heard a statistic, maybe 3% of people with cancer actually get into a clinical trial. You have to have this type of cancer, this mutation, have or haven't had a certain type of chemo that makes you eligible, et cetera. For me, everything started going soaring downhill about really 4th of July last year. I thought that being at the beach with our family would be a good thing. We did not know this at the time, but the cancer had gone to Joel's brain. Mm -hmm. He was sick as a dog in bed. Joel was always very emphatic that we try to not have the girls without one of us. So he got really sick, and my awesome brother-in-laws drove him halfway back from the beach to meet his sister, where they did MRIs and found out the cancer was in his brain. For this type of cancer, that's the last straw. You hear it's gone to his brain, and you pretty much know it's over, and it's a matter of time. I look back on all of that, and it, it is completely like a whirlwind. My sister came back with me, and my sisters all but just lived with me while I figured this out. My parents took my children, and we had to sit down and tell the girls their father was dying. Mm -hmm. Some pretty good advice is you have to be very factual with children. You can't say, daddy's going to heaven or daddy's going to sleep. Dr. Newman, who was a palliative care doctor, said, you just tell them like it is. And we had to sit them down and say, daddy is dying. He is not coming home. And we had to be very factual about it, which was pretty rough stuff. That said, we were there with him. And just as we're going through COVID right now, I can't tell you how many times I think, oh my God, thank God that was not this time last year. Mm -hmm. Joel would have been alone. Joel had somebody beside him every second of every day for the last three weeks in the hospital. Everybody deals with things differently. I spent so much time in the hospital. Joel could not die with me there. He knew that I couldn't handle it. And Dr. Dunbar, who's neuro-oncologist, said, A, hearing is the last thing to go, right? So he could hear me. He knew that I couldn't handle being there. We had a lot of family there. I walked out of the room, and probably within five, ten minutes of me walking out of the room, he died mm -hmm. with his sister and brother there. The whole dying process is pretty tough to watch. And the day after Joel died, I already had the funeral done for the most part. I went to my aunt's lake house, excuse me, and I went out on the boat and I rode Wave Runners and I drank Bud Light Lime. <laughs> just, needed, just needed to put in a plug for Bud, Bud Light. The Lime. The yeah, Lime. the Bud Light Lime. Not the Chilada or no, the regular no. <laughs> the Lime. I was desperate to feel the sun. Yeah. I was desperate to be out of a hospital. Your and kids are at camp at this point. At this point, my kids are at camp. And to the point of everybody has lots of judgment. Mm -hmm. My children were at Camp Kesem, which is an amazing camp for children whose parents have or had cancer. Mm -hmm. They had no social media there. They knew their father was dying. And he died on a Tuesday I went to the lake Wednesday, Thursday. I picked them up from camp on Friday with my sister, Anna, and my sister-in-law, Alicia. And we told them that their father had died. And then we got out of town immediately. Mm -hmm. We went down to, you know, the Fowlers. We mm -hmm. went down to their amazing house in Palmetto Bluff and just got out. Everybody gets to deal with things in their own way. Right. For me, right. I needed to go away. So we went away to Palmetto Bluff for several days Came back and did the funeral. I actually spoke at the funeral. I mean, it must have had, I don't know, 800 plus people. It was pretty huge. Our church is huge and there was nowhere to sit. I was adamant that I wanted to speak. And Pam, who was the pastor of our church, said, Julie, only 5% of people speak at their spouse's funeral. Mm -hmm. And then she said, 
but I know you. <laughs> right. And she said, I'm not going to argue with you. And then it was probably one of my most proud moments as a mother. Both of my girls spoke very much in their own voice at the funeral. And then we had the funeral. And then I packed up the car and we left till school went back. I could not handle being at home. Yeah. We went to the mountains. We went to the beach. We just did anything to be away. And then you had to reenter life as a widow. The word widow just, I mean, I know that's technically what I am. As a single mom. But widow just sounds like, I don't know, I have a bunch of cats roaming around <laughs> and I'm really old and maybe just kind of the sad, pathetic person. So I yes, didn't choose yes, the word, Jewel. I, okay, I chose the word just now. <laughs> But I didn't make it up. You did not make it up, but I think I need another word because it just is like the most depressing sounding word. But yes, I came back to reality as a widow. and You had to take your kids back to school for orientation. It was really hard because people, it's like they look at you like, Mm -hmm. there's the girl whose husband just died. And I'm just trying to meet a new teacher, right? Right. And I had some good friends that really jumped in for me and called the principals and explained what was going on. And the schools were very supportive and had many of them at the actual funeral. But it was pretty rough. I mean, I handled it by escaping. And then I seriously got home the Sunday night before my children went back to school on mm-hmm. Monday. And it was like, I couldn't breathe. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I I was sitting there going okay, here we go. How do I do this? I How do you do it? I think you, or for me, I just had to dig deep and realize I am my children's everything, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have a spouse anymore. I mean, I have a wonderful, huge, loving family, but, you know, my girls now are almost 11 and 13 and I'm annoying and dorky to them, (laughs) which who isn't annoying and dorky to their 11 and 13 year old daughters. But I truly hope that one day when they grow up, they will be like, man, my mom was a badass because she dealt with a lot and she persevered. So I came back to reality and they went back to school. Then we had, (laughs) we decided to go away for Labor Day weekend Mm -hmm. This is one of the craziest things about, I mean, all through your story, six years from diagnosis to death and some of the anecdotes that you have are just such a bizarre indicator that life just goes on and all its weirdness, whether your husband is sick or healthy as a horse. Yep. So you come back from Labor Day, what happens? So both of my girls have summer birthdays. And we had gone to see one of my best friends, Caroline, who lives on one of my favorite places, Sullivan's Island. You've got a lot of good friends with houses and nice places. I'm I need so to be lucky. hooked up with all these do you, people. Do you know what we call them? What, what's that? Cribs of leisure. <laughs> I need some cribs of leisure. You need some. You life. need some cribs of leisure, Paul. I do. I do. So we come back from. Labor Day, and I have two dogs, which somewhat equates to a third child Mm -hmm. because you can't just leave them for days. Long story short, I had a dog sitter who I had used before who had many, many references, not from randoms, but from people I know. I come back from Labor Day. I come to my house and I walk in my house. Anyone who knows me knows that I leave my house lickable clean. Mm -hmm. Like it's always in perfect shape. And I walk in and... There's some very cool leopard pants that I don't wear a lot sitting in the middle of my entryway to my house. And I think, (laughs) well, that's kind of strange. I haven't worn those leopard pants in a while. And then I start walking around my house and it is like a hurricane has gone through it. I walk into my bedroom. My drawers are all over the place. Long story short, I tell the girls, get upstairs. I ask dog sitter girl, what is going on? And she said, what do you mean what's going on? I said, you're in my children's pajamas, half covered in self-tanner, and my house looks like a hurricane went through it. Oh my God. Thankfully, a friend of mine was bringing me over dinner and I said, "Uh, sit down with Megan. I have to go outside and call the police. I go out and in her car is a giant monogrammed bag with my daughter's name on it Mm -hmm. in the back of her car. And I look in there And there's all my luggage stocked full with all my stuff in her car. Right. Thankfully, 
the cops came very quickly and she was arrested in my driveway. I had all of Joel's heavy, heavy, heavy duty narcotics hidden in a Tupperware container in a guest bedroom closet, just because frankly, I didn't know what to do with them. And it's not like you can flush them down the toilet or stick them in the trash. Right. She found everything from Vicodin to Percocet, et cetera, had a big old party and mm. it took pretty much six of us multiple days to clean my house up. As if after the emotional journey, <laughs> you need something like this to happen. But it's not the last thing you've got to deal with in your return to living a normal life. After your orientation at school, you have this revelation that you are the only parent left for your daughters. Yep. What other things do you have to keep in mind in that regard? So one of the things that was interesting is when Joel was diagnosed, little background history on Joel. Joel's father died when he was five of a heart attack, we think. His mother died when he was 13 of breast cancer. And his sister died, I think it was at 45, of some very crazy esophageal disease. So when Joel was diagnosed, one of my first gut instincts was, what is going on? So we had genetic testing done. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, his genetic testing came back fine, except for he had a gene for big teeth, which I thought was <laughs> kind of hilarious. <laughs> Which I guess is going into all of the orthodontia I'm paying for for one of my children now. <laughs> but I had the genetic testing done too. And this was about four plus years ago I had it done. And it turns out I have something called the CHECK2 gene, which is similar to the BRCA gene. Mm -hmm. And my mother and two of my aunts have had horrible breast cancer. So every six months for the past four years, I have had to get MRIs, mammograms, et cetera, to check my own healthiness. As if waiting for Joel's scans wasn't stressful enough on your family. Correct. And so I had met with a geneticist and it was really interesting because I knew I needed to go ahead and have a preventative double mastectomy. Mm -hmm. And for me, I just kept putting it on the back burner. And last November, I was getting my six-month checkup, and it was one of the first ones I had had since Joel died. And I'm sitting there waiting for the results, and I've never really been scared for myself, but I'm sitting there feeling like I, I can't breathe. I'm waiting on my own results. What if something happens to me? Mm-hmm. And I can sometimes be indecisive, but it was at that moment, I was so appreciative of the doctor. She said, when are you going to get this over with? She knew that Joel had died. I feel like doctors don't give their opinions a lot of times. And I was so appreciative. She just kind of gave me the impetus to let's get this over with. And I pretty much came out of that appointment. I called my sisters and said, who's coming to stay with me? I'm having a double mastectomy. Mm. And that was a tough decision, but completely the right decision. It was scary. It hurt like hell. It was overwhelming uh, emotionally somewhat. But at the same time, I can say with full conviction, I did the right thing. Right. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, at what point do you decide you've had enough? I mean, like... Do I get to call God and like say uncle? How did you deal with that through this process? Did you feel sorry for yourself at any point? Did you get angry at God? How did you manage that sort of unproductive anger? Oh, gosh, that's an excellent question. There were a lot of times where I just felt like a cauldron of angst, like I was a mm -hmm. volcano that was going to blow at any moment. I got in really good shape. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Uh, that that was kind of how I handled it. I think sometimes people look at, you know, finding 45 minutes to an hour working out four or five times a week is self-indulgent. For me, it is part of that self-care. Mm -hmm. I needed that. I still did a girl trip, friend trip every now and then. I think for me, I am a Christian and I really heavily leaned on my faith. Pam, who was the pastor of my church, who is an unbelievable spiritual counselor for me, she really helped me think about how to pray. Like, God, don't move the mountain, give me the strength to climb, right? Mm -hmm. I can't always pray for things to be okay, but I can pray for skillful surgeon hands. I can pray for strength for myself. I can pray for resiliency for my children. Mm. Did you find any books or philosophies particularly helpful 
in dealing with all this? Is that a boring question? It is a boring question. The thing that I found the most helpful, I did not find until after Joel had died. When you are going through watching someone dying, there is not really a real book, except for this one that I found that is probably one of the best books ever. It's called The Beginner's Guide to the End. And it is all about, you know how there's like, whatever those yellow and black books are that are all the- Cliff's begin- Notes. The, well, there's Cliff Notes, and then there's like, you know, for like your mom or oh, dad, oh, the uh, beginner's dummies, guide. The dummies guide. The dummies guys. Like, right, right. look here, you too can figure out Microsoft Office right. or something like that. Or death of your husband. Yeah, or the death of your husband. I have it upstairs. Do you want me to go look at the title of it? That's okay. You can send it to me. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay. It's called The Beginner's Guide to the End. And I've actually given it to a couple people that unfortunately are dealing with the death of someone in their family. Mm-hmm. And it is the most realistic, helpful guide in the end and how to handle things. Why did you agree to talk about this now? I think it kind of goes through what I've stated somewhat earlier in the show is because I kept everything so private for so long, that was how I coped in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was necessarily the right way. So for me to have a public way to talk about it. I think we had spoken earlier. I spoke at the Angels on Earth Foundation event for the Cancer Center with Piedmont Hospital. I was flattered that they asked me to talk about my experience as a caregiver. You always get some patient success story. Being a caregiver is really long and hard. It is a trek. It is not a journey. Mm. And for me, anything that I can do to help people with the trek they are going through because I have lived it and I was desperate to find anyone for advice that really knew the shoes that I was walking in. And I hope I can be that to others. Yeah. We go back to early-ish days of Yahoo. We met, you were 25 or so, right? Not too far out of school working as a young professional in the Atlanta office of Yahoo. I would come in to visit my parents from the West Coast where I was living at the time. Tell me what the colleagues from that office have meant to you through your career and specifically through this trek? So I'm getting a shout out to my Yahoo crew? Absolutely. Okay. I love that. So I am actually on the board of the marketing school of the Terry College of Business at Georgia. Mm -hmm. My friend, Kathy Ryan, and I lead the mentoring group. And similar to what you're talking about, your friends that you start your career with if you are smart, are with you throughout your career, not just as colleagues, but as the people that are going to be there for some of the happiest times and some of the hardest times. So I call them the Yahoo crew, you know, who they are. We all grew up together. We were all, it was actually me and five guys. And so <laughs> they, they, they became the brothers that I never had. And I'm truly fortunate that their wives are all some of my absolute best friends mm-hmm. now as well. That crew has talked about been there through all of it. We've been there through each other's engagements, weddings, children. This crew was truly there for me in some of the deepest, darkest hours of my life and are still there. And, uh, you know, to those that are listening that are, you know, perhaps younger, just getting out in the career world, keep those friends close because they'll be there with you for the long haul. How do you think about your career and life from here? Oh, that's a big one. I think for me, I you get these almost kind of new lenses, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think I get as stressed or worked up about things as I used to. I actually am just relatively newly back to work from being on medical leave for Mm -hmm. my own mastectomy. And I was actually on a call the other day, getting up to speed on some stuff. That was a very challenging situation with a client. And the colleague that I was talking to was like, I mean, after what you've been through, <laughs> does this problem really matter? And I'm kind of like, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get through it? I got through it with flying colors, but it does put an uncanny perspective on what does and doesn't matter. I love my job. I have had an unbelievable career and a fabulous industry. 
But I mean, think about like the chaos in the heyday. I don't let it affect me like that anymore. Where do you find joy on a day-to-day basis? I will always find joy. My family is truly unbelievable. We have an acronym in our family called BFE. Mm -hmm. Do you want to take a guess? Uh, there was a Dash Rip Rock song called Bum Fuck Egypt back in wow, 1991. That's, that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> B, BFE. It's not Bum Fuck Egypt. It is best family ever. Oh, okay. Uh, but I'm glad, I'm glad we're getting a good chuckle out of that. So what, is, so what does BFE mean to you? BFE is best family ever. So what it means to me is you show up no matter what. Mm-hmm. You think for others when they can't think for themselves, and you are as loving as possible despite the mood the patient, caregiver, or family is in. I say the word family, which is also inclusive of my closest of friends, been a huge lesson to me, and I hope that my children have learned what it means to be part of the best family ever and what it means to have friends and family. There's the family that you have and there's the family you choose. And my friends are the family I choose as well. Well, I want to thank you for trusting me with your story. And I think you're a badass. And I know your daughters will think you're a badass. Ah, yes. Very soon if they don't. If Paul Ollinger thinks I'm a badass, then like I'm good to go. You are a rock solid heroic warrior. And I'm honored that you had shared the story with me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Paul. You're welcome. Julie, I'm so grateful to you for sharing your story with me and for all our Crazy Money listeners. You are an inspiration. I know you don't want to be. I know being told you're brave is a backhanded compliment, but I hope that when I am called to step up in such a manner that I can conjure half the strength and grace that you did while going through this. So thank you again. Hey, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that. If you like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, I sure would appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and review the show. If you're on iTunes, you go back to the show page, scroll all the way down past the episodes, click some stars, write a nice review. And if you have a guest you'd like to see, I am taking your emails at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Make sure you conclude the podcast because somebody out there stole the URL from me. Paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I hope you have a great week. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.